0: to create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today
1: good day welcome to new books in history a podcast channel on the new books network my name is dr charles Coutillo of the royal historical society i'm a host on the channel and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Alexander Mika Bitsa of Louisiana State University. Professor Mika Bitsa has written a number of well-received books dealing with the era of the Napoleon, the uh, French Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. And today we are going to be discussing his newest book, The Napoleonic Wars: A Global History, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Coutinho. Uh, It's it's a real pleasure to be there.
1: Thank you. Uh, If uh, your book could be said to have a thesis, what would it be?
2: Uh, The book is, um, it it does indeed have a thesis, and it is uh, one that is trying to challenge the traditional narrative of the revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Much has written about this subject in the past uh, 200 years, Um, But uh, virtually everything is Eurocentric in the sense that it is uh, written with uh, either um, Napoleon in mind, so Napoleon is the core of the story, or as focused on events in uh, Western and Central Europe. Uh, So, my book tries to to move away from this traditional approach and showcase the global ramifications of the Napoleonic Wars by uh, touching upon other areas. Even within Europe, for example, uh, traditional narratives tend to ignore events in Scandinavia, events in the Balkan Peninsula, so I I bring that to the fold. Uh, But then I also move away uh, to other parts of the world, such as Latin America, Middle East, uh, parts of Asia, India, China, Japan, uh, and, and try to draw the connections between what was happening in Europe and how that translated to these far away corners of the world, and what was the impact of Napoleonic Wars. And I think, in that sense, this book is, is fresh and, and new in its approach.
1: And um, would it be correct to say that if your book could be um, said to have a hero, I use the word hero in quotation marks, it would be a, a Bonaparte?
2: <laughs> I, I, I noticed the Bonaparte years on your part. <laughs> um, no, I don't think, uh, well, yes and no, in the sense that, you know, since you said it's a hero in quotation marks, then uh, I, I think I'll, I'll, be, I'll be using that word as well. I don't perceive Napoleon necessarily as a hero. Um, I perceive him as a historically very important individual, a very uh, interesting individual. There are many aspects of his character, of his life that are, Quite uh, appealing, quite interesting. Uh, I've been reading his correspondence for many, many years, and uh, we've actually been reading yesterday some of the uh, newly published volumes of his correspondence. And reading those letters, you cannot walk away not appreciating the skill, the gift that this man had to control this enormous machinery. It, It certainly takes a skill. So I do look at him as a very gifted, very talented man, but I also, I'm Fully aware of those less appealing character traits that he has, he is uh, an ambitious man. He is oftentimes an opportunist. He is a deceiver, um, and um, he certainly is a cynic. So, uh, I I certainly am not the uh, fan of you know, like in a Bonapartist kind of uh, fan. But uh, I'm I'm more I'm willing to give him uh, some benefit of a doubt. Um, in, in in light of the events that is, is, they transpired. So I think some of the reviewers of my book noted that I'm as critical of the British as I am of the French, and I'm as critical of the French as I am of the Russians. So I think I try to be balanced, not to uh, be critical of, of any one side too much. For example, I take an issue why we call this this conflict the Napoleonic Wars. Um, why it, it, Because Napoleon doesn't bear the... the the overwhelming burden of it. There are many other countries who share the responsibility for this conflict and for uh, the long nature of it. Um, uh, And and that's, I think, uh, what my hope was in this book, to to offer a balanced approach.
1: What do you attribute the origins of the Revolutionary Wars, which commenced in the spring of 1792?
2: Um, That's a complex question. Um, uh, And the the short answer I think will be the in at least the the argument that I'm making in my book is that I don't look at the revolutionary wars as a necessarily a new era in military affairs. So uh, there is an element to that. Certainly later on the this rise of the mass conscription armies as, as the France practices in, in the wake of Levee en masse of seventeen ninety three certainly affects the military um but I uh, situate uh, French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars firmly in the context of the 18th century geopolitical struggles. So the, re- the war might have started in April of 1792 in response to the events, of uh, uh, revolutionary events in France, but it quickly lost its ideological uh, elements, so to speak, and reverted back to the uh, control uh, and the issues of control and power. So we see, for example, by 1796-97. Napoleon, when he's appealing to his soldiers, he's not talking about necessarily the revolutionary ideals, but he talks about the good old, you know, payments on time, payments in cash. Uh, we, we talk about the directory, the French revolutionary government seeking to control the, the areas from uh, Netherlands to Belgium to, to Rhineland to Italy, uh, not necessarily to freeze, quotation marks, um, uh, of the, the, the local regions, but to control and exploit them. Um, And and that's where I see uh, the the conundrum, or at least the complex character of the Revolutionary Wars. The early appeals, the early discussions of freedom, spreading this freedom and liberty to other areas were quickly subverted by much more material considerations um, uh, and desire for for, for control um, of those areas.
1: To uh, backtrack a little bit, can you tell the audience... uh... Uh, in outline form, at least, uh, the a little bit about the international 18th century international order.
2: Yes. Um, so, what is interesting in, uh, about 18th century is that it, it develops uh, several uh, principles, several pillars of what will be the 19th and in many respects 20th century international politics, and one of the core. Elements of this story is the emergence of the great powers and the very term, the, power the great power uh, and then great power, Pissons and grand Pissons, as, as they were used at the time, are actually the term, uh, terms that were forged at this time. So, in, in essence, in Europe in, in the 18th century, we have a series of nations, countries that are more powerful than the others. So, we've talked about France, Britain, Russia, especially in the wake of the Seven Years' War. Austria and Russia. So these great powers are dominant uh, in Europe, and we can consider them as the great powers. Even though this term will not be fully uh, enshrined until after the Napoleonic Wars, at the, at the Congress of Vienna, for example, it is uh, used quite quite frequently. And so these five great powers are in, locked in the in the tide of conflict and and competition with each other, which has been um, taking place quite frequently in the eighteenth century. Think of War of Spanish Succession with which the century began in between 1700 and 1714, followed by the Wars of Polish Succession, Austrian Succession, Seven Years' War, uh, and uh, um, uh, finally the um, Revolutionary War. But each of these powers, uh, I argue, in my country have a specific outlook on, on, on the world. Um, and I group them in several categories. So in the first category, I argue that there are powers that have solely continental outlook, and I uh, count Austria and Prussia as the prime examples of this. Meaning that these are the two countries who don't have positions outside Europe and they are uh, in many in, in respects landlocked countries. Right? They do have maybe access to sea, but they don't have the navy, so to speak, Austria and Prussia are good examples in that sense. And so they are focusing primarily to maintain, on maintaining their positions on the continent. That is uh, different f- uh, from the second category of those European powers whose interests are not solely confined to Europe. So, for example, France and Britain, but also Russia, Portugal, Spain, they all had possessions overseas and so they had both European interests but also colonial interests. Think about France and having uh, possessions in the Caribbean, think about Britain and the control of Canada, uh, great interest in in India, but of course most famously think about uh, Spain, right? Uh, relatively small country as far as Europe is concerned, but uh, in, in control of enormous colonial empire overseas. Uh, and then the third uh, group of countries that I identify are the other powers uh, that are, uh, are trying to survive in, in these um, international affairs dominated by the great. By the great powers. So think about the Dutch Republic, for example, or think about Italian states who have to position themselves in such a way as to survive in the the tide of of, of conflict and competition between the great powers. And uh, these relations, of course, are quite um, interesting because another principle uh, that emerges in the 18th century is understanding that uh, there is a need for certain balance. And so um, uh, if there is a theme that you, you see throughout my book is the theme of developing a, a balance of power, um, a notion that there needs to be a certain political equilibrium between the great powers, and once you achieve that equilibrium, there will be a peace and stability in Europe, um, uh, there will be no war, and, and Europe will be slowly able to, to develop. It's the achieving that political equilibrium that is so difficult, making sure that each uh, power is not too Powerful. Uh, so it, it will take the revolutionary Napoleonic Wars for, to finally achieve certain parity between the great powers, and that parity then will survive for about four decades, bringing uh, considerable prosperity to, to Europe.
1: Would you agree uh, with the American diplomatic historian Paul Schroeder uh, in his um, um, uh, categorization? Uh, by the late 18th century, but prior to 1792, that of the powers that you just mentioned, that there was a first tier and a second tier, first tier in essence being Russia and Great Britain, second tier being France, and third tier being Austria and Prussia.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, in a in sense that France used to be the first tier, and one of the core reasons for the you know the problems in you know, that that I discuss in my book is the reality that france is falling in the second tier and i did i mention um uh, problems that france is experiencing at this time uh, not the least is the financial right crisis that in turn affects its military capability so to give you a sense in seventeen eighty seven there was a attempted revolution in the neighboring uh, uh, netherlands um and where you have the fr- frankly, you know f- uh, more francophile faction it's t- attempting to um, uh, um, secure power and the revolution is is suppressed by Prussian invasion so certainly in seventeen eighty seven it is clear that France is a second tier power since it can't even defend its own backyard so to speak against the Prussian invasion. Uh, but uh, in in my book, what I argue is that Schroeder is correct uh, about outlining these tiers, but I think there is another tier or the fourth right kind of tier that deals with the remaining powers that have to survive in, in between those tiers, uh, between Russia and, and Prussia and Austria. Uh, I, I have here in mind uh, the, the uh, Polish state, which uh, ultimately doesn't make it, uh, right? It's, it's squeezed by this first- and second-tier states out of existence by 1795.
1: Why did the war of the First Coalition turn out the way it did? Um,
2: the I think that's where uh, I'm, um, my argument of connecting these wars to the previous the more geopolitical realities of the 18th century, um, maybe playing it out. If we look at... Um, at how the war began. It began in, in April of 1792 with France unprepared for the war, neither politically nor militarily. And France was suffering significant setbacks um, that only increased after the execution of the king in January of 1793. So here we have see a massive coalition of European states um, trying to contain this, uh, this French threat. Uh but by seventeen ninety five the situation has changed, right? Uh the French Revolutionary governments through a rather uh ruthless uh but, but efficient uh, policies, including uh the Great Terror, including the Leveille en masse, including the Law of Maximum and all this, were able to mobilize the the uh the resources of the entire nation and contain these coalition attacks. Uh not just contain, actually they went on, on counteroffensive so that by seventeen ninety five France is actually is engaging the coalition on on their on their terms, but what happens at the same time is also interesting: is is that at that same uh, time the future of Poland is being decided. So it's here you see this opportunism of of the great powers. So while Europe's attention is focused on France, uh, Pol- Poland endures two partitions right, in 1792, 93, and then uh, a third partition in 1795 with Austria. Russia and Russia, the great powers who one probably should have expected being engaged in a, in a conflict with France, uh, actually focusing their energies more on the partitioning of, of Poland, uh, which is snuffed out of existence uh, in, in 1795. So here we see the geopolitical arrangements, right? Uh, but it also, uh, the same kind of uh, uh, spillover effect we can see in, in Italy, where uh, the war uh, for a while was, was contained. Uh, France was unable to cross the Alps, right, in 93, 94, uh, But it is Napoleon, uh, the newly appointed uh, commander in chief of the army of Italy, who is able, through his skill, through his uh, uh, ingenuity, to inflict crushing defeats on Austria and uh, the Italian states and secure the control of, of Italy in 1796. By this time, then, um, other coalition partners decide to leave the coalition, uh, realizing that they, this is, a, is becoming a too much of a conflict. So, for example, Spain signs the treaty and leaves the coalition and not just leaves it, actually switches sides and becomes a French partner. Uh, Prussia, uh, again, in 1795, but the Treaty of Basel also gets to get out of coalition to pursue its own interests. And that's, I think, a core problem of the coalition warfare, is that members of the coalition might have... a a common enemy, but they also have inherently different ideas of how to fight that enemy, but also what their own goals are. And for a while, um, in fact, if we look at the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, one of the reasons why the French were so successful until 1812 was exactly the problem of coalition warfare. How do you convince the members of coalition to fight the same war? And until 18. 18- well, specifically 1813 you know, the, the Russian defeat that Napoleon suffers the coalition members can't ev- agree on this um, and even in 13 we see the problems of coalition warfare but they are not as pronounced at least they call, the, the coalition members can agree on, on, on the need to defeat Napoleon and pursue it even though they are inherently uh, conflicting interests that they have uh,
1: to go into a counterfactual uh, would it have been the case that a more aggressive commander than the Duke of Brunswick uh, would have uh, swept the French from the battlefield uh, circa September 1792 at, at Valmy, Or even with a more aggressive commander, the result would have been the same given the lateness of the season for campaigning?
2: Uh, I think we need to, to uh two two things here uh, one is political will and second is the yes indeed a more more uh, vigorous and more um engaged commander um, the reality is that we 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 lack both in the sense that Prussian interests in seventeen ninety two lay more in the second partition of Poland than they are in containing the french threat um frankly. Neither Prussia and Austria anticipated the problem, or could have anticipated, or certainly didn't anticipate, or didn't foresee how big of a problem the French Revolutionary government would become later on. They believed that this would be a contained affair. Certainly Britain also, right? And as far as many British circles are concerned, they looked at the French Revolution as a repeat of the British Revolutionary events from a century ago. So they were not particularly keen on on, on getting engaged in, in this conflict. Um, b- uh, but this, if we assume this two counterfactuals, then yes, it will be an interesting thing to ponder. Um, the French army was in disarray in 1792. The Battle of Valmy is not necessarily a battle as such, right? Uh, if, if we look at the battle, it's it's uh, it has an interesting uh, elements to it. It's artillery, right? Cannonade. It's not the the usual, the traditionally uh, vision of a battle with, with lines charging and hand-to-hand fighting, um, uh, and a, a general um, of different stature, uh, or maybe mindset than Brunswick. Somebody maybe like, oh, if, if we're looking of old mold, you know, of Savoy or Eugene of Savoy, maybe. If not of a new mold, uh, like Bonaparte would have, uh, would have made a short work
1: of the French army. Or even someone but we like. Need a
2: political will.
1: Or even someone like the Austrian General uh, Lacey, who had uh, yes. triumphed in the Turkish War that just concluded.
2: That's right. Um, but but that's a part of the equation, right? Second part will be the political will. Is there a, was there a will, or could there have been a will to pr- prosecute this war to the end? Um, uh, that's a that's a good counterfactual question uh, to to ponder. Um, as, because both Austria and Prussia, as we have seen, uh, have uh, at least one eye, if not, <laughs> if not more, uh, on 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 these uh, pieces of Poland that uh, uh, being partitioned in in the east.
1: Why, as you term it, was the five years between 1797 and 1802 quote crucial in shaping the course of European history unquote?
2: My argument is this: uh, by seventeen, uh, by, by by this time, right, the, uh, the, the uh, France has established itself uh, uh, as the dominant Western power, uh, or at least the dominant power in Western Europe, to, to to be precise. And over those five years, what Bonaparte is doing is, is, is trying to consolidate his positions, um, and he's successful in this, and and that's why I bil- argue. Uh, is that this French ability to use this period to, to establish her, her, uh, themselves firmly in, in Western Europe is the foundation for events to come. And here it's not just uh, military success, it's also the success of, of expo- exporting French ideas, not necessarily revolutionary ideas, but the ideas of a different kind of governance, different kind of approach to uh, control of populations, different kind of approach to the uh, extracting resources from populations. French are pioneers in, in how they do this at uh, this period. And by controlling territories, uh, the newly uh, conquered territories, they're exporting this approach to these territories and increasingly establishing self firm control. Uh, it is the control of these areas that will then allow France to continue the war, to sustain the war for the, for the years to come.
1: What were the uh, interplay between war and polit- political development in France in the year 1792
2: up to 1799? Um, François Furet, uh, the great French historian, um, in, in when when he wrote uh, the history, the inter- you know thinking about French history, he once observed. That war conducted revolution far more than the revolution conducted the war, and I think that is the core of, of this of this question that you asked. Uh, and what he meant by this was that once the war began in 1792, uh, the the way war developed, the the way international relations developed during this war, profoundly affected the political development uh, in in France. And after 17. Um, the summer of towards the fall, uh, it is the war that increasingly drove the, uh, the political developments within France and contributed to the rapid radicalization of the French political discourse. If we look at the great events, um, the great journeys, right, the great revolutionary upheavals, um, whether we talk about the collapse of a French monarchy in August, on August 10, 1792, or the the infamous massacres of September 1792, or the revolts uh, of May 31, June 2nd of 1793, that brought the radical Jacobins to power. Uh, all these events are connected to the events on the front line. Usually these are setbacks of the French experience, which then reverberate back um, uh, on the political front. Uh, the very notion of the great terror, uh, the terror campaign that Jacobins unleashed. Or 1793 was uh, uh, carried out within the context of a national security. Right, Jacobins always argued that what they were doing is uh, trying to protect the nation at this you know, very difficult moment uh, for 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 the country, um, and they used the right the uh, the terror campaign uh, as a way of rooting out the enemies uh, both on the uh, within the France. Uh, to, uh, uh, before the war is lost, so war is crucial to radicalization of revolution i don 't think revolution would have developed this the way it did without the impact of the war.
1: What were bonaparte 's goals in uh, foreign policy upon assuming power in seventeen ninety
2: nine His immediate goal was to consolidate what he already had, and um, in my book um, I have a passage where I'm arguing that it doesn't really matter whether we have a Bonaparte or any other general, um, because we know that France had uh, a generation of very uh, ambitious and talented generals at this time. Um, Whether it was Bonaparte or not, um, any any head of the state that France would have had at this time would have taken advantage of the reality uh, that um, he was... Facing. And the reality was that France had won the first two coalition wars and that it was in, in control of this enormous territory that included parts of the Netherlands, Belgium, Rhineland, parts of Switzerland, and most of northern Italy. And what Napoleon, what Bonaparte uh, did uh, upon coming to power was to consolidate control in these areas. And my argument is that any head of the state. could would have come to power in france at this time whether it was directory or 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 a a dictator so to speak um of bonaparte's mold would have done the same thing Um, and as a result of these developments um, of course france consolidated its position in western europe uh and and that in itself challenged the existing uh, political order of things in international affairs in, in europe and threatened the interests of many uh, other european states uh, certainly austrians who are now excluded from uh, most of uh, italy, northern italy certainly uh, prussian and russian interests since what one of the things napoleon started to do was to consolidate french interests in the southern Germany, right, the, the famous imperial recess by which he started to restructure the German states, and of course uh, the British, uh, who are quite worried about the uh, French control of the low countries, the Austrian Netherlands and, and the Dutch Republic themselves. And so Napoleon was, the, uh, the, that. That's in, in foreign affairs, that's his uh, immediate goal, and he's quite successful in this. Now, that success, however, um, did cause him to... Um, overreach, uh, I, I, um, yeah, I think. For example, um, he pledged not to annex territories in Italy, but by 1802 he will start annexing territories. Uh, parts of Piedmont will become part of, of France. So those actions will uh, alienate and certainly contribute to the outbreak of the war. Um, uh, but Bonaparte's uh, other uh, Goal is to bring order and stability within France, and we see that happening quite effectively between um, 1800 and 1803, when um, in a series of very interesting reforms, um, Napoleon was able to restore uh, a a semblance of order um, and and stability in France. It it, it, um, happened at at a high cost. Certainly, we can consider some of the things that he has done as draconian but uh, for the contemporaries they were not perce- these this, uh, efforts were not perceived as such so for example his establishment of the a new corps of gendarmerie armed gendarmerie to uh, go into countryside and, and suppress banditry and, and other uh, criminality uh, did cause death of quite a significant number of individuals but from the contemporary point of view this this was a necessary evil uh, to rein in the turmoil and chaos that the revolution produced uh, which is why uh, at this time Bonaparte is largely popular uh, he he promised to deliver order and stability and he effectively uh, does so he, there is a certain support uh, for him uh, at at this time
1: why did the british and the french come to terms in 1801 especially and, and in particular why did the british do so
2: uh, that that goes to the heart and <laughs> I think to the of the book and, and also to a, a bigger question of why the war began in in 1803. So um in 18 by 1802 um, France and um, Britain will sign the peace of Amiens to be precise on March 25 of 1802, and this peace will be the the pinnacle of uh, two years of negotiations that began on the system as Bonaparte came to power, and um, that's one of the goals Napoleon had when he, he secured power: is to restore peace um, as, as, as a as a gateway to the order and stability uh, that will come. And so he writes this rather famous letter to King George saying. The war, which, for eight years has ravaged the four quarters of the world, must it be eternal and I think that the reflection of the reality that both sides are quite tired of, of the war that has been raging for almost a decade, and there is not much to show for it and so they do agree on on this Treaty of uh, amiens um, but um, the problem with the uh, Treaty of Amiens, and I think again it, it goes to wide later on collapse was that it's there. It has some very interesting elements, some good elements, but it also has uh, major problems. Um, to, so to start with, Amiens brought an end uh, to the French Revolutionary Wars. So this, the first two coalitions are, were unable to defeat France and now they are in tatters. and the British recognized the reality that they have no ally left on the continent. Um, um, every country that they, the British had allied with or had some kind of relationship, um, uh, aimed against France, have been either defeated or they uh, have left the coalition, so that includes Spain and Prussia, as I mentioned, but also Austria, which was finally defeated right, um, both in 1797 and then again in 1800, uh, while Russians are uh, preoccupied with their own affairs, uh, not the least was the consolidation of power in Eastern Europe. Um, so uh, Britain simply faces the reality of being alone face-to-face with France. And, and there is an increase in within the British public about this prospect, about the prospect of the hampered trade and economic impact that the war is having. Uh, so if we look at the uh, treaty itself, then we see that it is uh, broadly beneficial to France. Um, and that's where I'm, I'm arguing that the French diplomatic team, uh, the, the team that represented France at these negotiations, I think um, got better terms than than the British team did. So, um, if we look at the negotiations, the two key issues that negotiators focused on: these were overseas colonies and a Mediterranean region. And on both issues, uh, Britain uh, compromised significant. Uh, significantly, um, Britain agreed, for example, to return all of its colonial conquests. Uh, so, in the previous eight uh, almost seven years of, of fighting, everything that it captured had to be returned. And it also agreed, the British agreed to evacuate generally all the ports and islands that they seized in the Mediterranean or the Adriatic. Uh, in return, France did promise to evacuate its troops from Naples um, and parts of, um, other parts of Italy. Uh, But it was not as uh, in scale, uh, certainly in in commitment, it was not comparable to the British commitment. Uh, If nothing else, Britain pledged to withdraw from Egypt, um, which um, uh, Napoleon famously invaded in 1798. And um, um, there are no explicit uh, provisions in the treaty safeguarding uh, British trade interests on the continent, which was one of the key issues. Um, and I think that's so, again uh, uh success the british, uh, French diplomacy that they ensured that there are no no provisions requiring france to um to put, you know to open themselves up to the British trade. The British expect that the peace that follows will result in re- return of the british um, goods British commerce on the continent, but as we'll see um uh, that's not what happens. Bonaparte is keen on
1: excluding
2: uh, the British uh, um, commerce from the continent uh, and developing French and that will become one of the stumbling blocks uh, which ultimately contributes to the collapse of the Treaty of Amiens.
1: Uh, what were the strategic and political consequences of the battles of Austerlitz and Trafalgar? Um,
2: well, here uh, I think <laughs> Uh, some some uh, some of your British listeners might not like what I have to say. There. <laughs> so let me start with Trafalgar, maybe. Um, Trafalgar is a very is an important battle, um, and much has been written about it—the um, the victory of Horatio Nelson that eliminates two thirds of the Franco-Spanish fleet and consolidates the British mastery of the seas. Right? The story is, is well known. Um, but what I'm arguing in in my book, is, is that even though Trafalgar is one of the largest naval battles of the um, 19th century, uh, its overall importance, I think, is somewhat um, overblown. So it, it does have profound consequences and immediate consequences, right? Um, so the biggest one is the fact that it removed the immediate threat of the French invasion. However, um, my argument is that Trafalgar's importance tends to be exaggerated. It tends to be uh, colored by patriotic sentiment, especially if the further away we get to it, many, many, many things are. Uh, um, looked with a more pinkish eyeglasses. and Nelson himself. Uh, a friend of mine just wrote a book about Nelson in, in Naples, and he he's gotten a lot of criticism for daring to, to criticize Nelson. So there's this certain... Um, don't don't touch the national hero, right? But what we have here is this, um, Trafalgar did not produce, and I want to emphasize it, did not produce the decisive consequences right away. In fact, um, if we look, uh, Trafalgar is in, in the larger context, immediate context, meaningless because Napoleon went on to destroy the third and fourth coalitions in 1805, 1806 and he engineered a geopolitical shift in the Near East where the Ottoman Empire and Iran aligned with France. So not irrespective of the naval victory that the British had, there is a massive geopolitical shift that is taking place. Um, Second uh, issue that I have is this. We oftentimes think that Trafalgar ended the French naval presence and that uh, British um, were unchallenged on the seas. Yet for the next seven years, for the next seven years, um, the British command of the seas was, was not as secure as we would like to see, uh, and instead what we see is the French continued to have naval presence. French admirals continued to conduct wide-ranging operations in the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, especially in, in 1807, 1808, 1809. Uh, furthermore, Napoleon continued to replenish his naval forces by both building new fleets as well as acquiring them by um, conquest or by other means which is why British had to challenge him again and again. Um, think about British attack on Denmark right, uh, in 1807 uh, or think about British actions in Lisbon uh, when they effectively secured the Portuguese fleet um, or think about the expedition to Walcheren or the attack on the Basque roads. Uh, later on, uh, the French operations in the Indian Ocean that necessitate the British invasion of the Mascarene Islands. So it will take, in fact, until, the, uh, until 1811 to fully neutralize the French naval uh, presence. Uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, is uh, Professor Kenneth Johnson, who is uh, who has this unenviable task of writing the French naval history during this period. And he's working on, the, uh, on, the, uh, on, on his magna opus, on Napoleon's use of the sea. And one of the interesting things that he uncovered is the extent to which Napoleon was able to rebuild his naval forces by 1812, by 1813. Now, he's unable to put this fleet um, out to use, um, you know, because he's, unlike the armies where he can, can train them on land, the Navy's uh, required... Um, extensive training out in sea, and that's one of the core problems that the French experience. So even though they are rebuilding ships, they don't have the crews to mend them to a sufficient number of them. But you know, the, the argument I have is that Trafalgar is important. It does neutralize short term the French threat, but it will take many more years to actually um, deal with the French naval threat as a whole. On the other hand. Austerlitz, the the great victory that Napoleon scored on December 2nd, 1805, also has a a much more immediate geopolitical impact. Um, Austerlitz gave Napoleon actually control of most of central Europe. It it forced the the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire, which is actually gone by, by the spring of 1806, it forced Austrians to uh, give up a significant amount of their influence, both in Germany and Italy, and it established uh, France as the dominant continental power. There is there's no doubt about this. It is because of Austerlism that Napoleon can then uh, build on the success of his first imperial recess and bring about profound restructuring of German states. It is in the wake of Austerlism that we see creation of the uh, Confederation of the Rhine, the new Uh, reality set in Germany where the Holy Roman Empire that consists of more than 330 states is now reduced through a rather painful process of reshaping, abolition, merger to just three dozen states. Um, It is because of oscillates that we then see uh, the French uh, control of Italian, further control of Italian Peninsula since uh, the uh, the Kingdom of Naples is invaded shortly after the uh, battle is fought and, and French consolidate their power in, in south of Italy and um, it is because of Austerlitz that we see the War of Fourth Coalition uh, with, with Prussians belatedly right, joining the war effort only to have their aspirations so brutally crushed on the fields of you know, in October of 1806
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Uh, The uh, battles of uh, Austerlitz and Trafalgar give us a new uh, Maison Seine um, with uh, the death in early 1806 of uh, the younger Pitt, who was the foremost proponent of uh, hostilities uh, towards uh, revolutionary France, Napoleonic France. Uh, he leaves the scene and then we have a, a Ministry of All Talents uh, headed by Lord uh, uh, Grenville uh, with Charles James Fox, the famous Whig uh, politician as Foreign Secretary. Uh, a, a topic in the book or a subject in the book which you don't seem to really go into is why there was no um, peace um, Treaty, you know, in essence, why there was no um, agreement on terms between uh, Bonaparte and this new uh, British uh, cabinet, uh, which, in the case of uh, Fox as Foreign Secretary, um, had been quite critical of uh, the British uh, efforts in the war. In terms of, from his perspective, the war could be concluded on peaceful terms with Bonaparte. And um, as you may re- recall, this is a subject matter of uh, one of Sir Herbert Butterfield's earlier books, Napoleon's Peace Tactics. Can you go into why there was no, um, why there was a failure of agreement between uh, the Ministry of All Talents and Bonaparte in terms of concluding hostilities?
2: Um, yes, Um I think, if we're looking at mistakes Napoleon makes, I think that's one of the mistakes, uh, is not, appreciate, not appreciating the importance of the moment um, and um, grab, really, the opportunities. Um, um, the Ministry of Talent, of all talents, especially Fox, as you mentioned, was uh, quite keen on, on uh, signing peace uh, with France. Uh, in the wake of rather unsuccessful war effort that has been um, going on for the past three years, and the um, conditions that they offered uh, Napoleon was actually quite, um, quite, I think, it should have been quite acceptable to to French interests. They effectively um, allowed um, France to keep every uh, all the you know, possessions that they had or the all conquests they had within Europe. So France would have stayed, still stayed. Dominant uh, power uh, in Western and Central Europe, um, but um, here I think is the issue is of personalities. Um, I think here is the issue of um, ambitious, of maybe of, you know, certainly of over overestimating your own uh, abilities. Um, Napoleon is is convinced that Britain is teetering on on the edge. He has an opportunity to actually defeat the British, not simply to sign a peace with them. Parity, but to actually bring them to their knees, and that in itself would have been quite an accomplishment. You believe, right? That's a historic enemy of France. Um, uh, certainly, the events of Austerlitz the events of Vienna uh, and um, Auerstadt, um, give them a sense of in in the, of all all power, this omnipotence, and um, it's not as much of the interests. Um, or, or the inability to reach the compromise on certain I- interests it's the um Napoleon's unwillingness to accept the treaty at this time because he believes he's uh, he's he has, he has he's a, a, a a lucky streak here but also um remember that Fox dies right in September of eighteen o six um and um that also plays a role because Fox was the i think greatest francophile in the, in the British government at the time. And um, his death opened the way for more hawkish members of the cabinet who were not as keen on on reaching the uh, deal with with, with France. Uh, bear in mind that this is a time, 1806, when Britain actually is conducting wide-ranging expeditionary warfare. Uh, this is a period when the British invaded South Africa. They conducted two invasions of Latin America, uh, unsuccessful but nonetheless. Um, and there are um, you know the wide ranging imperial interests that that Britain has um, on the list in India, um, all of which had to be brought then to negotiating table and even though Fox was willing to do it, um, other members of the British government were not um, um, so um, it's a, it's a complex issue, but overall, I think it's Napoleon that I probably hold responsible for the failure of the peace. More than than anyone else.
1: Uh, what do you? How do you explain the? I would call the relative failure of sea power in the period examined. I'm thinking in particular. Obviously, it could only be relative because there were many successes. But I'm thinking in particular of uh, the failure in Corsica in 1793, the failure of, uh, to take Santo Domingo um, thereafter. And the as you just mentioned, the two failures in reference to the Argentine in eighteen eighteen o seven eighteen o eight what how do you explain those failures and, and the inability of british of the British to um, convert their command absolute command of the sea or something approaching it by that point uh to um, uh, acquire these uh, different possessions
2: um well, again, a v- very good question, but very complex in the sense that Britain is the only power. Um, France might 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 have some claim to it, but not not to the degree that British have. But Britain is the only power who is able con- to conduct the worldwide operations, and that consumes enormous resources. Uh, just looking at the size of the Royal Navy, the amount of material uh, it consumed, There are wonderful studies by Roger Knight james davy on on these logistical sides of the Navy, it just a staggering of of the ability of the British state or the uh, british rule you know navy or economy to sustain this war effort um but it also meant that it oftentimes these forces are stretched on on a global scale so in eighteen o six as I mentioned um uh, admiral Pavhang right has schemes of invading Argentina what is today Argentina. And now he does it on its own volition, right? In the wake of the invasion of South Africa, which was which was a sanctioned invasion, upon him takes the troops and goes to uh, Argentina, which causes a, actually a, a backlash, uh, a whiplash, so to speak, from the British government who didn't sanction that uh, that invasion and was concerned of what will what potentially might might happen. Uh, but the success, the success, or at least this this um, perception of success, uh, or that the British had uh in, in the first attack on Buenos Aires actually encouraged further um planning and scheming so you have these grandiose uh plans that uh, well or the Wellesley Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington is approached to explore possibility of sailing around the world the fact coordinating it, a double uh attack on on mexico but overall the the British track record is is actually uh, quite good on in terms of conducting Um, the operations on the sea. They are certainly superb vis-à-vis another naval force. They they track record against the French, or the Spanish is superb. But what happens is that the sea only secures so much of territory. The ships, uh, as famously Walpole was uh, referring to, uh, uh, in the context of the Polish succession, uh, that unless we drag the ships to Warsaw, there is not much we can do to prevent the partition. So indeed, um, you might have a superb navy, but that navy's reach only extends to the sea and in order to project your power to on the continents uh, Latin, uh, south America africa uh, subcontinent like India, you need to have troops, and troops were something that the British had to use very sparingly, hence why those expeditions to uh, to South America are quite small if you look at the size of the uh, invading forces and why they were able why the locals Uh, They were able uh, to to contain them, right? The poor Beresford was forced to capitulate and and, and surrender. Um, But uh, elsewhere, uh, let's say in the Indian Ocean, um, the British operations are quite successful, um, um, but they use a a slightly different approach. in, in India, it's not the British military as such, right? not the regular army, but rather the British East India company troops who do uh, most of the fighting, and here the role of Wellesley is uh, both uh, Richard Wellesley and Arthur Wellesley is quite important. Uh, Wellesley's effectively created the British imperial state in, in India, so by the time Richard Wellesley left 1805, he left an important legacy. Of British conquests, um, so that's successful. And even in, in, in the Caribbean, where the climate, where the diseases, where the many logistical challenges uh, hampered the British, First, by 1809, uh, 1810, they are successful at, at, at invading the islands and securing them to the British throne. Um, so I think overall, it's the logistical challenges that hampered the British, not necessarily uh, other uh, considerations.
1: What explains the relative failure of the French in the Iberian Peninsula campaigns from 1807 to 1813? Was it a matter of inadequate commanders, or or was it more of a structural, was it more structural nature as per the French way of war, not being able to work well in the Iberian Peninsula? Spain, um,
2: that's Again, uh, speaking of Napoleon's mistakes, um, that's, yet yeah, it might be a cliche to say it at, at this, at this um, junction of time, but um, he should not have gotten to to Spain, needless to say. There are other ways, I'm arguing in, in the book, that he could have controlled uh, Spain. Uh, for example, he could have uh, forced uh, the good old uh, Carlos to resign in favor of his son Ferdinand uh, and then uh, used Ferdinand. Um, as as a proxy, uh, because if you look at Ferdinand's letters to Napoleon, um, they are indicating a man who is quite insecure and and would have been quite easily dominated by by Napoleon. And I think uh, Schroeder, whom you mentioned um, a few minutes ago, is quite um, correct when he, uh, in, in speaking of Napoleon's actions in Spain, when he says that in talents, Napoleon was a great military captain, but in character and methods, a great capo or mafioso. Uh, because the events uh, in, in Spain, how he uh, forced uh, the, the Spanish royal family to resign its rights, in Bayonne are clearly anything but palatable. But uh, when it comes to the war itself, I think uh, one of the core reasons why it is um, unsuccessful is the reality of Napoleon misjudging the character um, the, the, or, or the nature of the war in, in Spain. He should have known better um, and I'm arguing uh, about this um, in, in my book, is that um, French diplomats have been providing Napoleon with a steady, steady reports about how different this country was from other places that, uh, that the French have been. That the, na- that the national character um, Spanish people. It was quite quite different from Italian or the German or the others. and that, if the intervention was uh, would take place, that uh, French would struggle here. Napoleon ignores all of it. Um, um, he and that's what boggles me. In that, a voracious and inquiring reader um, such as Napoleon, and we know he was a voracious reader. Uh, anyone who's seen his letters. Um, talking about the establishment of library and the type of books he selected for the library, or the mobile portable library that he created of several hundred volumes that he carried with him. All of that, uh, to me, um, should have indicated that Napoleon should have known more about the country that he was invading. Um, He should have most certainly, and we know that he read these diplomatic warnings, That and uh, I'll quote one of them, that Spaniards don't resemble any other nation, they have a noble and generous character, but which tends in the direction of ferocity. And they could not stand being treated as a conquered nation. Once driven to despair, they would be capable of the most valiant decisions and could commit the worst excesses. So this is a, a letter written on the eve of invasion, and this is not the sole, uh, ex- you know, one just of of, of a chance. It's, it's a part of a steady stream of letters Napoleon receives later on. He's uh, the head of his secret police and and a close confidant, uh, General Savary, will admit and he will say that, you know, we did underestimate the Spanish national self-esteem. But it it doesn't negate the the reality that Napoleon's decision to invade Spain was a fundamental miscalculation, uh, failing to take into account the character of the nation. But then is the reality of what to do once you are there. And um, even though there is this, uh, again, uh, uh, overall narrative of valiant Spanish people rising up and uh, all jointly resisting Napoleon and ultimately defeating him, recent scholarship uh, has shown that to be a myth. Um, In in here, I think Charles Aysdale, the great British historian who has written extensively on this, um, has shown major, major problems with this traditional narrative over a Spanish uprising for God, King, in the country. Uh, as the has shown, that um, in most cases, the primary concern for rebels was not fighting for the monarchy or fighting for the nation as, as a whole, but it was instead fight for land, for bread. Um, it was a sense of vengeance, vengeance for what the French has done, or oh, have done, but also vengeance on their own Spanish property classes. Uh, that uh, the, the Spaniards on the lower socioeconomic uh, uh, strata uh, thought that the opportunity was ripe to to seek some redress. Uh, indeed, um, the guerrillas right hurt the French. They intercepted communications. They attacked French convoys, and, and the French struggle to adjust to these guerrilla tactics. But it's not not that they were unsuccessful completely we, we, we know that there are um, parts of Spain uh, where French works c- quite successful again Charles Edel has written an interesting study on the French presence in Andalusia and we see the extent of the French success there uh, and it is also true that by eighteen uh, ten uh, f- the French ha- were able to consolidate their power in, in most of Spain, hence why we have this invasion of Portugal and if if Uh, there was no British presence in Portugal, if there was no Wellington, no Torres Vedras, no uh, British resistance, um, uh, and if this this French invasion of Portugal had succeeded in 1811, I think the history of the Peninsular War would have been quite different. Uh, So it is not the guerrillas or the nature of the war that they were fighting that defeated the French, but it is more of a traditional, um, the Anglo-Portuguese-Spanish Conventional war that that snapped the French resources.
1: What were uh, Bonaparte's failures in the Russian campaign? And were they the result of a weakening uh, failure as a military commander? Or was it a failure to reimagine how to fight a war in a different environment from that of Central Europe?
2: Thank you for a very interesting question. And again, like in Spain, we see here, um, at least for for me, it's it's another perplexing moment, or conundrums. Um, If you're following Bonaparte's career, you see the the capacity he has for brilliance, brilliance in politics and military, and then um, we face this reality of 1812. Um, 1812, um, I don't think it should have happened. In the book, um, what I'm arguing is that uh, one of these counterfactual questions I ask is: What would have happened if Napoleon used the same resources that he had in 1812, but instead of uh, instead of going to Russia, he gone back to Spain and Portugal? Um, what would have happened if he had expelled the well, uh, the British from the, from the Peninsula uh, and consolidated the French uh, power in in the Iberian Peninsula instead of confronting the Russian threat? Because there was um, in, in growing hostility, right? Uh, tensions between Russia and France, but invading Russia should have been the very last option um, to be exercised, and I don't think that was where Napoleon uh, stood in, in, in June of 1812. Once the war began, we see a um, few problems. Um, it is a it is a myth that Napoleon did not prepare logistically for this war. No, anyone who has read his correspondence. Uh, knows the extent to which he spent the previous year preparing for the war, enormous uh, logistical preparations for food, for supplies, for uniforms, all of this. Uh, but I think he underestimated the extent to which Russia was underdeveloped and again, he should have listened his diplomats including Colin who well, provided a steady stream of reports saying that this country is quite different. Um, but um, one of the things that startled me as I started, as I was working on this book and I was uh, researching in the National Archives um, in, in, in Paris, um, where uh, there are massive um, stacks of documents relating to this campaign, is is the f- simple things like the lack of maps. You would think that if, when you're going to a country like Russia, you would have maps, uh, and of course they they did have maps. But one of the things that they figure out quickly enough in the first two weeks of of the war was that the maps were inadequate. And so you see these letters back and forth uh, between uh, Napoleon and his marshals uh, expressing complete frustration about how inadequate the maps were. Uh, Berthier, Napoleon's chief of staff, writes to marshals like Davout saying, we don't even know where you are located because the location that you're writing about is not on the map, so please... Uh, There's one of the letters that says, please, as you go along, please create your own maps and send them to us so we can create a a larger uh, um, visual representation of the area that we occupy. So that in itself is a problem, right? Um, Now, the French army did carry a significant amount of resources with them, but the lack of roads, especially in places like uh, the the Northern Front or the Southern Front, that is not covered as much in the traditional narrative, uh, shows the, uh, the... complete lack of infrastructure um, so unlike Central Europe un- unlike northern Italy unlike uh, German uh, states where Napoleon has been fighting uh, in the previous years and that had actually uh, a good roadway uh, road networks uh, russia is lacking them and whatever roads they had were uh, uh, you know made of, of of the wood of the Timber covered with mud, with, with some soil that turned into a nightmare, soon as it drain, and it did rain shortly after the invasion began. Uh, but of course, that is one part of the story. And The second part is the Russian ability to conduct a masterful campaign. Um, there is a the long debate, um, and I've been part in, in, through my own writings, whether Russians had a clear uh, plan of action. My increasingly my under, my conviction is that they did you know, we don't have a one single piece of document saying this is what we're gonna do but we have little bits and uh pieces that we can reconstruct the overall picture so we see we we, we see for example memorandums that have written by uh people like peter chikevi and uh, Official at the Ministry of War advising the Minister of War, uh, Mikhail Barclay de Tolly, who himself is a very important figure in this story. And Trikevich, in his uh, memo, um, argues in favor of a prolonged war of retreating, surrendering the territory in exchange for time. He argues in a war um, uh, like the war in Spain, the, the, the Russians had the benefit of studying the events in Spain and they realized the challenges that. They facing there and they wanted to replicate those challenges in, within Russia and to a great degree they are successful in this. Uh, speaking of which, Chukevich's memo was uh, unknown in, in Western scholarship and I translated it um, so anyone um, interested in reading it can simply uh, google it um, and, and find it on, online for free and, and see what was the type of war uh, that Chukevich and the senior officials and of minister of war argued are in favor. The minister of war, Barclay de Tolib, was uh, a keen proponent of a prolonged warfare, of, of a very methodical uh, war. Uh, he was not uh, the only man but uh, to, to argue in favor of it, but he faced a steady, uh, rather serious resistance from other uh, elements of the Russian military. So, uh, my fellow Georgian, um, like me, uh, General Peter Bagration, Uh, was actually a proponent of a a short war, a decisive showdown with the French, and if Bagration uh, uh, had been appointed the commander-in-chief in in 1812, the war would have been exactly what Napoleon wanted, a short and decisive uh, victory for the French. Uh, Bagration would have rushed into a a confrontation that would have been uh, disastrous. But it is uh, rather fortunate for the Russians to have a, a steady Uh, individual like Barclay de Tolly to ensure that this policy of of methodical retreat, uh, scorched earth policy uh, is is carried out in this crucial first month and a half of the war. And even though Barclay de Tolly is removed from command in August, um, the legacy that he left is that, that by that time the Russian armies already are deep into the Russian territories, French by necessity have followed them all the way to Moscow and Napoleon he has seen much of the force that he had squandered away.
1: From your perspective, what was the single greatest failure of Bonaparte's uh, Russian campaign?
2: Uh, you mean in terms of military or the political?
1: Uh, either either one or both.
2: Um, so if we look at the on the military side, the campaign is interesting because Napoleon... Um, Whenever he engages the Russian seas, is largely successful. Battle of Smolensk, French won. Battle of Ostrohno, they won. The the great maneuver at Smolensk is quite actually brilliant. Uh, Even the Battle of Borodino, which is bloody, but nonetheless a French victory. Um, Even during the retreat, uh, French uh, are able to hold their right, hold themselves. battle ready, whether at uh, Mahler and or at uh, Krasny, where the Russian attempts to uh, destroy them are largely unsuccessful. Uh, Berezina, on which I wrote a book, uh, might not be the uh, uh, French victory, as some French historians claim it, but it was nonetheless, nonetheless success in, in extricating uh, the, the French military from a very dangerous uh, situation when Russians should have destroyed the remnants of it. so militarily uh, there are some problems that we see uh, 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 on the French side um, but it's it's problems that uh, deal with uh, uh, both exhaustion in the second part of the campaign uh, the, the collapsing structure of it. we talk about divisions that are reduced to in scale to just a few hundred men. We talk about uh, regiments, there's just a few dozen men. Um, uh, but it's also the problem of, uh, uh, of again, uh, Napoleon's maybe lack of imagination. I think that plays out especially true at Borodino, right? when other marshals, most famously Davout, urges Napoleon a more flexible approach to the battle. He, you know, Davout suggests a flanking maneuver to. Or to do it like the French used to do, right? Pin down the enemy and then smash from one of the flanks. And Napoleon chooses not to do it, fearful that the Russians will continue to retreat. And instead, he chooses a very uh, conventional, uh, you know, straight on attack that caused horrific uh, casualties. But on the political side, what I see here is again a um, um, failure of Napoleon to appreciate the moment. When he captured Moscow in, in September of uh, 1812, he spent in this city 36 days, 36 days in a, in a city that burned shortly after the French entrance, in a city that was a, just a smoldering ruins, and yet he chose to spend there 36 days waiting for what? Um, well, waiting for the Russians to ask for peace. And furthermore. When he realized that Russian peace overtures were not coming, Napoleon sent his own request for peace only to see them rebuffed, and yet he stayed. And I think that's a failure of political imagination here. Um, if anything, he should have um, declared peace or you know, declared the war over. In fact, he actually say, I won the war. I captured Moscow, even though it's not a capital uh, anymore. St. Right? Petersburg is. But nonetheless, he could have claimed it. He could have used propaganda machine to have... Uh, uh, you know, turned this war in his, uh, you know, portrayed the war in his favor, and then retreated back into Western provinces of Russian Empire, restru- you know, re, uh, regrouped uh, in places like today's Belarus or, or Poland or Lithuania, and then uh, um, resumed the war uh, next spring. But he didn't, he, he waited for too long. And uh, my argument um, is that Napoleon here failed to understand how profoundly his relationship with Emperor Alexander of Russia had changed or how profoundly the mood of Russian society had changed. Um, Alexander knew very well of the widespread displeasure that prevailed in Russia over his perceived subservience um, to Napoleon. He knew how upset the Russian society was about uh, uh, Tilsit where for many Russians, it seems that the Russian, uh, Russian interests were sacrificed. And they were, he knew particularly of the extent that that discontent increased during this invasion of 1812. Uh, let me quote a letter that his sister, Catherine, wrote to Alexander uh, in September of 1812. And here's the quote. Just, she says, Discontent is at its highest, and your person, he refers to alexander himself your person is far, far from being spared if such news reaches me you can imagine the rest you openly accused of having brought disaster upon your empire or having caused general ruin and the ruin of private individuals lastly of having lost the honor of your country so i don't see any uh, any way alexander would have accepted Deal with Napoleon on, uh, on the terms that Napoleon wanted them. Uh, and again, uh, let me—you know—it might sound as me rehashing the same idea, but Napoleon should have known this. If anything, on the eve of the war, his ambassador to Russia, Colin Court, tells him about the conversation he had with Emperor Alexander, during which Alexander warned Napoleon that if the war started, it will not be over until French got out completely of. Of Russia, in that quote, he was willing to go all the way to Kamchatka to fight the war, um, and yet Napoleon ignored this.
1: What explains uh, Bonaparte's failures in the German campaigns of 1813? Were they more tactical or a matter of logistics, particularly um, shortages of, uh, of horses?
2: Um, yes, uh, part. part um oh, the problem is the logistics uh, you're absolutely right about the lack of uh, of cavalry um the russian campaign decimated the russian uh, me, the french cavalry force and it would have taken at least 2 years to fully uh, if not if certainly longer but at least 2 years to fully rebuild um the french cavalry force and in in the absence of cavalry Napoleon was unable to uh, fully uh, exploit the early victory he's, he scored. So uh, it's not as not as much tactical um, because if we look at the battles of Lutzen and Bautzen in, in May of 1813, Napoleon is quite brilliant, uh, even with the uh, inexperienced troops that he has, the newly recruited uh, right conscripts from France. Um, he still is capable of inflicting serious defeats on the coalition forces, uh, but this lack of cavalry as well as as certain um, uh, mistakes by some of your subordinates uh, um, contributed to this uh, inability to exploit the victories. But to me, the the answer to your question is more uh, on the other side um, of the story, and that is the ability of the Allies, the Russians, the uh, Austrians, the Prussians, to learn from the previous lessons, to adjust their... Uh, approach to the war. So we know that uh, in the wake of the defeats uh, of 1806, Prussia spent years, uh, the last few years, mobilizing or restructuring, reforming uh, their, the forces of the Prussian army in 1813. It's quite different from the one that Napoleon was facing in 1806. Same applies for Austria in the wake of defeats. Um, also, in the field of Austerlitz and elsewhere, Austrians were reforming their forces. Um, and same applies to the Russians, right? In the wake of Austerlitz and other defeats, the Russian army went through a, a period of reform. And during this reforming period, the, these countries were were borrowing pits, bits and pieces of the French experience and adjusting them to their own uh, expectations. Uh, and even bigger, I think, of bigger importance is the ability of the coalition to work together. So, unlike previous coalitions, so in 1805, Third Coalition, or in 1806, the Fourth Coalition, Napoleon, uh, in 1813, what we see is the coalition partners on the field next to each other at the same time. So, let me remind the listener that when this War of Third Coalition began in 1805, uh, Napoleon in the first faced Austrians, and then the Russian army was still on its way, but before it arrived, the Austrian army was destroyed and then Napoleon was able to deal with the Russians. Uh, the Prussians never, uh, did not join the war, they mobilized, but did not, and then the following year they decided right, to enter the war, only to be destroyed separately. So what we see in the previous cases is the Napoleon facing not a, a, a united coalition. Right? We speak about these coalitions, but they are not united, they are not coordinating their efforts aside until 1813. In 1813 we see this coalition of, of Russia, Prussia, Austria, well-funded by the British, coalescing at the same time that their armies take the field. And it is here that we see another mistake Napoleon makes and that is accepting the armistice of Klesvitz. The In the wake of his early victories in the May of 1813, the Allies and Napoleon agree on, on negotiating a certain uh, uh, peace even though neither side actually was interested in having peace deal as such. Um, And the Pleysuits Armistice, which went through all of June and, and July, allowed the Allies to develop a strategy to mobilize fully their forces, and that's especially true for the Austrians. So that when the war was resumed in August of 1813, Napoleon for the first time in his career is facing a a full-fledged, fully formed coalition force. And he he, he finds it very difficult to fight this war, a war where the coalition partners are coordinating their actions, so that if Napoleon reaches uh, towards the Army of North. He's facing the uh, Army of Bohemia Army of Silesia, and he's unable to deal with multiple threats at a time. His solution, right, famously, is to stay in one uh, place at Leipzig, expecting the coalition to converge and fight him there, which they do, but the French lost.
1: Uh, actually, you anticipate my next question, which was in... in um Great War historiography, in terms of uh, the military campaigns, there is a term which is frequently used uh, called the learning curve. Um, Of the uh, opponents of Bonaparte, uh, which one, which particular army, Prussian, Russian, Austrian, or for that matter uh, British, would you say was uh, best at adapting to the French style of warfare?
2: this is a very interesting and a complex question that you asked uh, because we see individual armies or you know, individual countries and armies adjusting in their own way to the french threat um, in most cases it's not the tactical changes that they uh, I- implement but more of a structural organizational changes that uh, that focus on streamlining um for focus on on efficiency um, and, and command and control. So one of the core innovation that spreads at this time in places like Austria and, and Prussia and Russia is the core structure that the French developed. So instead of uh, ad hoc divisions and ad hoc corps, we we see a permanent structure emerging, just like the one that Napoleon established in, in French army in 1802-3, when we have a, a core with, uh, consisting of several divisions. Uh, of combined arms, right, infantry, artillery, and and cavalry, and those core systems will be borrowed by uh, Russians and Austrians and, and Prussians. So that by 1813, he's facing uh, an enemy that uh, organizationally and structurally is is fighting uh, a similar way. Uh, tactically, uh, I don't think there is a much uh, difference, so to speak, uh, between this the way this army is fought. Um, it is uh, it's more of a ability of the commander in general to uh, to tactically outclass, outmatch the opponent that is that is at at, at, at the heart of the story here. So that uh, you know, Austrian individual Austrian soldiers were as brave as the French. The same applies for the Russians, right? And Napoleon famously says in frustration that it's not enough to simply kill the Russian soldier; you also need to knock him down. He still continues to fight on after, after being dead um uh, so the on individual levels these armies have a brave devoted uh soldiers who continue, you know who went through uh, a horrifying experience on a battlefield but it's the brilliance of commanders that is a problem um um so when we deal with individuals like uh, Wittgenstein, right? Peter Ludwig Wittgenstein, the Russian commander-in-chief in in the spring of 1813. Um, I don't think he was anywhere uh, on the level of Napoleon, and hence we see the Russian setbacks. Okay. So, uh, so in Austria. Uh, on the other hand, um, in earlier campaigns, we see adjustments that Archduke Charles famously advocated, right? In 1806, 1807, 1808. Uh, all leading to the War of 1809 and we see how the uh, organizationally different Austrian army was able to hold its uh, ground against the French at and, and Wagram, um, but I think uh, it still was lacking that certain oomph that the French had and uh, maybe Napoleon is the oomph the that, uh, that they were missing. Um, right? Wellington famously speaks of Napoleon being, you know, Uh, equivalent to 40,000 men on the battlefield because he does have, uh, Napoleon does have this ability to look at the battlefield and understand what needs to be done. Uh, The coup d'oeil that he has where he quickly uh, grasps um, the battlefield and what uh, should be the reaction, he's a great improviser. I don't think the opponents um, had that kind of commander in general uh, with exception for the British and I have a, a, a utmost respect, um, and admiration for the duke of wallet.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Uh,
2: um the the biggest thing that I, I tried to achieve in this book was to underscore the scale and the extent of the impact that this war had. Um I you know, I'm 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 originally from country of Georgia. Uh, and growing up i've read oh, as, as many other kids and young adults do um, a lot of books and certainly i was drawn to um you know to napoleon's story and uh, oftentimes i was frustrated that it was too focused on napoleon or too focused on events in, in western central europe and the, the my goal in writing this book was to broaden this this narrative we're living in an ever increasingly um of a globalized world, a world of connections, a world where uh, butterflies wings in one part of the world can cause right ripples in, uh, on on the other and that's the argument of this book is that Napoleon is not just a European figure, but he is a figure who inadvertently that's not part of his plan, but inadvertently oftentimes causes profound changes elsewhere. um I argue in this book that Napoleon ultimately is a loser he lost. His empire is erased from the map of, of, of Europe. France is in a worse shape in 1815 than it was in 1800 when Napoleon came to power. But it's the ramifications outside the Europe that is of interest to me. So. Inadvertently, not you know, Napoleon becomes an architect of a a modern uh, Latin America. Uh, His invasion of Spain is not just important because it causes the Iberian struggles. It's not important because of the British uh, uh, interventions in 1809 through 1814 and the power struggles it unleashed. But it is uh, this invasion is important because what it does in Latin America, where it forces the Spanish colonies to reassess their own Uh, sense of identity and place. It it forces them to choose. Should they stay loyal to the Bourbon monarchy that was overthrown? Should they receive Napoleon's emissaries and pledge loyalty to Napoleon? Or should they actually choose a third, yet unknown, path? And we know that many of them do choose this third path so that by uh, uh, 1825, Latin America is free of Spanish colonial uh, uh, control. Instead, we see the emergence of the modern modern uh, um, countries such as uh, Argentina or, or Colombia. So that's where they, I see the impact of Napoleonic Wars. And if, if the, the book is hoping to, to show something, is to show how uh, transforming this conflict was. Uh, another area I would, I would remind the readers uh, or the listeners of this podcast is the impact Napoleon had on the Middle East. Uh, for, uh, his invasion of Egypt has a profound consequences by shattering the existing status quo, removing the Mamluk uh, uh, government, right, the authority that dominated Egypt for the past few hundred years and creating a political vacuum that is then filled in by uh, the, uh, the maverick, uh, Mehmed Ali, uh, who goes on, on reforming, borrowing actually French practices. Reforming Egypt and, and introducing important changes that turn Egypt into a powerhouse that is capable of challenging the Ottoman Empire in 1830s and 40s to profound consequences. Same applies to the Ottoman Empire and in Iran. Uh, if Napoleon, one of the things the Napoleonic Wars showed is this, uh, the the problem that these countries had in confronting this threat of European powers. The Ottomans had to deal with a um, Russian um, territorial uh, aggrandizement, um, they, they had to deal with the growing power of Napoleon, uh, and of, they were unable to adjust to the reality. Uh, uh, same applies in Iran, where the uh, this, uh, Napoleonic uh, War spilled over all the way to Iran, forcing the Shah to choose whether he, want, uh, he wanted to stay with the... Uh, French side them uh, with them against the Russians or to skate with the British against the French and all uh, this geopolitical maneuvering ultimately produced the biggest impact that I, um, I I'm arguing in the book and and is this uh, the most enduring Napoleonic legacy is creation of uh, reform minded elites in in Ottoman Empire in in Iran that did not question the cultural norms or, or social structures on which the traditional uh, order rested in this, in this country, but instead believed that uh, this Napoleonic um, style or Napoleon, European style uh, military and administrative reforms were absolutely crucial to, survive, to the survival of their state because these reforms would have enabled them to consolidate their domestic power uh, and to protect their states more effectively. But these reforms entail the introduction of Western practices into Islamic society. And in such, as such, they pose challenges to existing power structures because these reforms, as Napoleon um, carried them out, uh, were about centralization. They were about inserting central government into the daily life of its uh, subjects much more directly and much more pervasively than ever before, which is why We see a reaction to this, so uh, your listeners probably know about the Ottoman Janissaries resisting these reforms that Sultan Selim III initiated, or the uh, the Rehzal-Bash elite refusing to accept the reforms that uh, the Crown Prince Abbas urged in in Iran. Uh, And these groups reacted very negatively to these reforms and rejected them, even though these modernizing changes would have better protected their respective states. And so one of the themes of this book is that this confrontation increasingly uh, came to be seen as a struggle for the very essence of Islamic way of life. And I think its profound effects uh, continue to reverberate to the present day.
1: Well, with that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Mika Berditsa, for being so kind to speak with us today. Uh, I should point out that this is a, a truly splendid book. And it's actually reviewed in the current issue of the New York Review of Books. Uh, This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
2: Thank you so much for a very enjoyable interview. Appreciate it.